This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm David Brenner, the Vice Chancellor of Health Sciences at UC San Diego, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to one of our health talks. The title of today's talk is Leveraging Digital Technologies to Improve Patient Health. We've all noticed that um, there's so many amazing digital technologies available. And the question I would, ask, I would ask our panel to address today is, how can we use this amazing technology to improve healthcare? How can we figure out whether a tool is useful or not useful in, in taking better care of patients? And, and to address this, we have established a new Center for Health Innovations at UC San Diego Health. I'd like to thank specifically um, Erwin Jacobs and Paul Citron, who are the co-chairs of our Science, Technology, and Global Initiatives Committee, um, they really championed this. They really challenged us to take what we know about digital um, um, instruments and see how we can apply it to improving healthcare. I also wanna take this opportunity to thank um, Joan and Erwin Jacobs. They provided the, um, the very generous gift to create the Joan and Erwin Jacobs Chancellor's Endowed Chair in digital health innovation, the first such endowed chair ever created. My colleague, um, Dr. Kevin Patrick, will help guide us through today's meeting and introduce um, each panelist as they present. Um, Dr. Patrick is um, a real thought leader in this field, a practicing physician um, who is a professor at UC San Diego and an internationally known expert in digital health. And he, um, in collaboration with the health system, really spearheaded the efforts to establish our new center. I would like to kick this off by um, asking um, Paul Citron um, to say a few words. He's the co-chair of the Science, Technology, and Global um, Initiative Committee. Um, he was um, a, a leader at um, Medtronic, one of the most advanced um, medical devices company. And um, he was vice president of technology policy and academic relations. He um, now is um, an active um, faculty affiliate at our Jacobs School of Engineering. Um, Paul, please say a few words. Thanks for the introduction. As a co-chair of the Science, Technology, and Global Initiatives Committee of the uh, Health Board of Advisors, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to join today's health talk. My professional career, as was touched on a moment ago, began in 1972 at Medtronic Incorporated in Minneapolis. Armed with a newly minted master's degree, I began as a biomedical research engineer in the cardiac pacemaker division. I retired from the company in 2005, having been as vice president of science and technology. This was a period when innovative technologies began a transformation of healthcare from the kindly, solely practitioner stereotype to one where physicians, scientists, and engineers collaborate to find ways to restore seriously ill patients to fuller and healthier lives. We've been very successful in large measure through the leadership and vision of institutions like UC San Diego that are transforming healthcare for the better. As you will hear from today's speakers, Healthcare is at an exciting inflection point. Today's speakers will share with you how digital technologies are reshaping the practice of medicine and how you, actually we, as patients, are the beneficiaries. Let's consider three examples. 
wearable and implanted monitors now collect important real-time physiological data and turn data into useful and actionable information for physicians. Versions of these remote monitoring systems also detect infrequent but potentially serious events that require prompt attention. It was not long ago that ambulatory monitoring was seen by some as engineers gone wild. Today, continuous monitors are routinely used to guide and improve important therapies in areas such as cardiology, neurology, and diabetes. New applications are rapidly emerging. Another example, artificial intelligence, will increasingly be applied to collection of clinical data and treatment outcomes. These data will be used to tease out optimal treatment strategies for the patient at hand. Think about it. Millions of patient outcomes from around the world will be analyzed to inform the preferred treatment strategy for each new patient. The third example is uh, enhanced remote capabilities will serve to make healthcare more inclusive, accessible, efficient, and equitable. For instance, the waiting room experience will de-emphasize the waiting component and emphasize productive patient and healthcare provider interactions. In many instances, the home will replace the traditional waiting room. I'm excited about UC San Diego's health commitment to leading the way in leveraging digital technologies to improve healthcare. Their physicians, scientists, and engineers are committed to keeping the patient's interests front and center in this endeavor. I hope you will consider joining me in providing philanthropic support to the Center for Health Innovation. And with that, let me now turn the program over to Dr. Kevin Patrick. Thanks, Paul. Uh, we're really grateful to the leadership that you and Dr. Jacobs uh, have provided to, to this initiative. And, and thank you, David, for, for your ongoing support as well. It's been really, really terrific. So we are excited today to feature some of the initial efforts in digital health that our uh, new Center for Health Innovation at UC San Diego Health uh, is doing. Uh, with seed funding from both Dr. Brenner and from Patty Mason, the CEO of UC San Diego Health, We've been up and running now for several months, but this is our first public event. So you're witnessing the beginning of a a dawn of an era. You see here our vision and our mission. Uh, Today's panel is gonna emphasize core principles that that we're focusing on, but our vision is to become a world leader in the development and implementation of innovative health technologies to improve people's lives. And the way we're gonna do this, we plan to do this, is to develop a very thriving and dynamic health technology ecosystem that enables innovation at scale with impact through testing here and and beyond. Today's panel is gonna emphasize our core principles. And one of the most important is that our, our center is not simply focused on technology. Rather, it is based solidly on the needs of patients and their families. And to the extent possible, we are trying to do everything we can to include patients and their families in, in the design of what it is that we offer. And you'll hear more about that, uh, more about that today. 
In addition to our panelists today, this effort is the work of many. Our center steering committee is this group of people that you see here. Nicole May and Jeffrey Pan are our co-directors. They were drawn from uh, their positions in, uh, in as key program managers at UC San Diego Health. Chris Longhurst is our chief medical officer and chief digital health officer. That's a first position that we've had here at, at UCSD. Parag Agnihotri is the chief medical officer for our population health uh, services uh, uh, group. Josh Klandolf is chief information officer. And Eli Spencer, like myself, is a physician who has been doing research in, in, in related areas to digital health for, for quite some time. Um, the two areas of effort that we're going to focus on today are our two initial pilot projects in, in this first phase. Project 1000 is, is focusing on scaling up rapidly in the face of COVID and a variety of other challenges, remote patient monitoring. Uh, the theme of it is patients at home working with healthcare providers to make healthcare decisions using these new digital interventions. And again, you'll be hearing, hearing uh, about this in a bit. The second, uh, Paul alluded to this, is this concept of uh, data used for machine learning and artificial intelligence, leveraging those data from our electronic medical record to provide unique insights into the prevention and treatment of disease. This really is a remarkable new era that allows us to do uh, unprecedented things. And many of us have been dreaming about this for a long time, but, but now we can actually do this. Without further ado, our first panelist today is Dr. Christy Colasa. Christy is a clinical professor of medicine at UC San Diego School of Medicine and director of inpatient glycemic control at UC San Diego Health. Uh, Christy has been on almost all of our meetings since the inception of this project because she's got such wonderful real-world experience in her world of diabetes, of, of what patients are confronting. And among her other efforts, she's quite active in, in a group called the Society of Hospital Medicine uh, and is a mentor uh, in, in that particular program. So she really knows of what she talks. And so, Christy... Have at it. Great. Thank you for having me. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about bridging the technology gap in patient-centered diabetes care. Uh, in diabetes, we have loads of technology. We've got personal blood glucose meters. We've got small ones. We've got large ones. We've got ones you can talk to. We've got ones that'll talk to you. We've got Bluetooth meters. We've got meters that'll tell you if you're reading at that very moment is above target, below target, in target. We've got continuous glucose monitors now where patients don't even need to prick their finger anymore. In this particular one, you just wear it on the back of your arm. Uh, a sensor is detecting your blood sugar every five minutes. And rather than poking your finger, you can swipe uh, and it'll give you your blood sugar reading. Uh, and the direction of change. Plus, you'll be able to see the, the track and trend your blood sugars um, that it's been monitoring. We've got continuous glucose monitors that you don't even need to swipe. They just beam that information to your watch, your phone, your iPad. We've got um, technology to where loved ones can follow this data for you. So it works great for children and elderly. So the patient can be monitoring it and a follower can be watching it as well. We've got sensors that are implantable that you don't even have to change every 10 to 14 days. We've got uh, technology there with uh, where insulin pens will talk to your phone, talk to your continuous glucose monitor. 
We've got insulin pumps with tubing. We've got insulin pumps without tubing. And we've got insulin pumps now that put all of this together with software, speak to the continuous glucose monitor and make little changes without the patient even being involved. So as you can see, diabetes technology is vast and it has been able to uh, improve patient outcomes significantly over the last many years. We've got loads of data with all of this technology. We've even got um, standardized views of this data in our ambulatory glucose profile and this report right here, which is um, an easy way to look at all the different technologies um, using the same language, basically. Um, it's helpful for patients. We can talk about their time and range. We can look here um, at some particular points of time and day uh, that might be their weak points. We have, in addition to this, we have lots of other reports. We can look at day modal views where you look at every single day, a spaghetti graph on top of each other. You can look at individual days. You can look at, you know, weeks at a time, certain time points. And we've even got consensus on what this data should be to improve clinical outcomes. So as you can see, with all this technology and all this data, we've come a long way uh, for this chronic disease. One of the things uh, and biggest barriers that we have is putting all of this together for the time, um, time effect or, you know, to make a very efficient appointment for the patient. So taking all of this data from all the different technology and devices out there, putting it into one single report, which we have, but then being able to serve it on a silver platter for the provider to be able to utilize it during the appointment, whether it be a televisit or an in-person visit, and then at the click of a button, being able to integrate it in with the EHR as well. So this is what we're lacking. We're lacking um, some sort of platform to integrate every single piece of diabetes technology out there. We have very good reports. They can always be improved on, but really bringing all that together in an efficient manner at the time of the appointment and integrating it with the medical record uh, would be ideal. Right now, uh, for patients who can't um, share their data, we have to be very creative during a televisit, have them hold their uh, logbook up to the video and try to see the data that way, maybe perhaps showing us uh, their meter, whatever data we can get to make the best decisions um, and make it as easy as possible for both the patient and the provider. But even then, you know, if we do get the data, it's hard to integrate with the EHR. So right now we have to copy and paste a lot of these reports to put them into our notes. There's no discrete data that's able to track and trend this within the EHR. So in diabetes, we've had patient-centered management of diabetes for a long time. So this is a chronic self-managed disease. The patient is absolutely at the center of it. And we need to, we do for management decisions, take all sorts of characteristics um, and shared management with the patient. We talk about comorbidities. We talk about barriers in their social life and their, you know, finances, uh, what's going on in their lifestyle. And really it's a, a negotiation every single visit of how can I help you achieve the best outcomes? It should be the same way with all of this technology and utilizing it. 
the patient needs to be at the center as well as the provider. So what? how can we make this easier for the patient and bring all their devices? They're already doing so much work on a day-to-day basis to manage their diabetes. Uh, for them to have to take an extra two, three, four, or even five steps to connect their device with the clinic um, so that we can utilize that data um, during their appointment. It it should be simple. That um, data should flow passively. And then what about between visits? If we had a command center here looking at that data that they're working so hard to collect, and even being able to help them and reach out via phone or text if something comes up and have some sort of shared metrics with the patient of when they need to be alerted, um, really trying to break down this, this chronic disease into achievable targets. So this is exactly what we're doing in Project 1000, is trying to develop um, a pilot for diabetes care and really utilizing this remote patient monitoring for blood sugars, Um, and creating this uh, command center to be able to utilize with the patient. So with that, I'll conclude and turn it over to Dr. Uh, Patrick for our next speaker to talk more about Project 1000. Great, thank you, Christy. Uh, Our next panelist uh, is gonna be Dr. Ming-Tai Seal. She's professor and vice chair of the Department of Family Medicine in our School of Medicine and director of outcomes analytics uh, at UC San Diego Health. Dr. Seal has worked with leading user-centered design firms such as IDEO on patient experience improvement projects and is among the first researchers uh, to, to use video and audio recordings to study how doctors and patients allocate and share their time within clinical encounters. Her research teams have created multiple tools for enhancing patient-centered communication, and uh, she really is a world leader in this area of patient-centered research. So, Ming, please go ahead. Thank you. So I will talk about how UC San Diego Health is advancing knowledge in digital health uh, with patient-centered approaches. We want to understand what matters most to patients, family caregivers, and healthcare team in taking care of patients in the context of a learning health system. So we systematically gather and create evidence um, in the forms of data, qualitative or quantitative, and we apply the most promising evidence to improve care in, you know, in what we do in practice. And with this virtuous uh, learning cycle, we try to serve our patients. So I invite you to think about your last um, encounter with a clinician or your, your loved ones. Were you able to get all the things that are important to you discussed or the most important things that you want to discuss? We've heard previously from patients at another organization that they had a hard time doing that. Um, They say, you have to be really articulate and you start the conversation. Otherwise, you may forget what you wanted to talk about. And from physicians, we heard that um, they may not know why the patient came until they went into the exam room. So we set out to improve Um, patient-physician communication in clinical encounters with funding from the Patient Center Outcomes Research Institute. With over 5,000 patients in three systems, we created this pre-visit questionnaire for patients to actually write out what's the most important thing for their visit. And then physicians can import that with a tool, a smart tool in the electronic health record 
directly into their progress notes. So our physicians had told us that many patients are slightly anxious for their first video visit. This is during the COVID, so having a list to review made it easier to get started. Another physician said the patient listed something that they did not bring up, so I was able to ask them about it. So this tool has now been adopted by the Epic Health uh, Electronic Health Record System platform-wide for all e-check-ins. And we're really happy about that. Um, and we've published the, uh, this study in the Journal of um, Medical Internet Research. So that's about patients in clinics and before they come to clinics. So we know lots of patients spend most of their time at home. So how about our patients who are at home and with chronic conditions? And this is what the Project 1000 we have digital health for patients with hypertension, for patients with diabetes, to monitor their blood pressure, to monitor their glucose wirelessly, use Bluetooth-enabled um, devices that are provided to our patients without additional charge. And we have a team, a multidisciplinary team serving those patients. So we have worked with uh, qualitative researchers to learn from our patients and care team members. They did shadowing of care teams for a day, see how they work, how they help patients with initial setups and how they go to have home visits. And they did um, in-depth interview with individual patients with different conditions, living in different areas, with different levels of resources, age and gender. So we've learned that patients who are active in the program and take readings regularly feel like it has had a positive impact on their health. Now it's become a part of their daily routine to take care of their health. And they said that knowing that someone is monitoring their readings make them feel like someone actually cares at UC San Diego Health. Uh, one very poignant example I want to share with you, let's call this patient N. She has hypertension and deep vein thrombosis, and she had a pulmonary embolism that was surgically removed. She was in the process of establishing care with primary care, and she was referred to digital health. Our digital health specialist made a home visit, um, saw that her systolic blood pressure was 200, diastolic blood pressure was 100. So that suggests a hypertensive crisis. She also reported chest pain, headache, dizziness, and shortness of breath with exertion. The digital health specialist was a former emergency medicine technician, an EMT, so he conversed with our registered nurse on the digital health team and escalated for ED referral. The patient was seen at the emergency department, stabilized, and discharged home. So our digital health specialist told our researcher our service has become essential. We have caught a bunch of close calls with patients. One patient even said, I saved their life. We have some early results from our 800 some patients. Among patients with hypertension, there was an average reduction in both the systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Among patients with diabetes, there's also reduction in blood pressure and their A1C measures. We also asked about our patients with their experience. 
um, based on your experience with UC San Diego Health Population Health Digital Health Program, how likely are you to recommend family and friends to the program? We see that 55% of them responded that extremely likely and 31% very likely. So in total, 86% either extremely or very likely would recommend this program. So it was my honor to share with you some early learnings from our patient-centered team-based digital health program in UC San Diego Health as a learning health system. Thank you. I give it back to Dr. Patrick. So thank you, Ming. Much appreciated. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Shamim Namadi, uh, who is an assistant professor in our Division of Biomedical Informatics and Director of Predictive Analytics at, the, at UC San Diego Health. Among many of his efforts, Dr. Namadi is a UCSD ambassador to Microsoft and its Artificial Intelligence Industry Innovation Coalition for Healthcare. He's also a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. So Shamim, you got the floor. All right. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I've been asked to talk about um, applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and how they help uh, with improving patient care. Uh, I thought it might be fun to uh, just go through a use case and demonstrate how this type of um, algorithms, they, they come about and how they can help. So around um, September of 2020, I received an email from uh, Dr. Jane Burns from the Radius uh, Children's Hospital, uh, telling me that they are starting to see um, patients, pediatric patients coming in uh, with um, uh, persistent fever, abdominal pain, with uh, vomiting, rash, skin, and in some cases, severe cases of hypotension and, and shock. And she um, and her team realized that there are some similarities between these patients and another group of patients that are known as the Kawasaki disease patients. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Jane Burns and her team, they spent the last 20 years studying this um, uh, Kawasaki disease. So it turns out this new group of patients that they were seeing, they belong to this other disease that is called multi-system inflammatory syn syndrome that uh, really um, came about um, during the COVID. And uh, roughly 98% of these patients, they have uh, they are positive uh, for SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. And the other 2%, they, um, they had some sort of contacts with other people who had uh, COVID. So uh, Dr. Byrne and her team, they realized that there are quite a bit of similarity between these patients. Uh, in particular, um, you know, many of the laboratory values are off in bo both groups, uh, but there are cases that there are also differences. Like in the MISC case, there are older children in the Kawasaki disease, they tend to be a bit younger. Um, there are uh, demographic differences between these two groups. Uh, but ultimately, many of these patients, if they don't receive the treatments, uh, they end up uh, developing coronary artery dilation um, and basically a lot of heart problems, they end up in the intensive care. So uh, she basically said that you know, at the point of care in the ED, it's quite hard for our front-end uh, clinicians to uh, figure out, uh, you know, difference between these two groups. And it would be very nice to have an AI system that can distinguish between MIC and KD patients. So around the same time, I had a very talented um, PhD student, uh, Jonathan Lamb, approached me and he was interested in doing a rotation. So uh, I said, you know, fantastic. Um, Let's, let's work on this really timely problem. 
So uh, Dr. Byrne and her team, uh, because of their work on Kawasaki disease, they have been putting together registries over the past 20 years, in particular for Kawasaki disease, as, be, as well as febrile children's, and you know, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, also on these MIC patients. So he, he got started with building a model. Uh, around the same time, uh, Dr. Byrne established a collaboration across the US and started collecting data sets from um, many cases of MIC throughout the country. So what we had access to was very simple information about the patients as well as their age, uh, you know, their laboratory measurements, some of the vital signs. And the, this particular data set had diagnosis of uh, Kawasaki and as well as MIC as defined by the Center for Disease Control and American Heart Association. And we used that as what we call the gold standard. So we had examples of patients and we had their diagnosis. So next, what Jonathan did, he said, uh, let's build a two-stage algorithm. In the first stage, Basically, the algorithm distinguishes between MIC and not MIC patients. So patients come to the emergency department. We collect the seven, uh, 17 laboratory measurements, as well as the five clinical signs. And the algorithm uh, is able to classify patients into two different buckets, the first one being MIC, the second one being not MIC. And then among the non-MIC patients, uh, there's a separate uh, classifier that says, is this patient a febrile control patient or is it a Kawasaki disease um, patient? Uh, the reason we came up with this two-stage approach was because really clinicians wanted to know uh, about this uh, rare and unfamiliar case and they didn't want to miss the diagnosis of MISC. So that's the first stage followed by, by the second stage. So the particular algorithm that Jonathan used is something called a neural network. But before getting into that, let's, let's just uh, walk through how the traditional models, they work. So the traditional model often rely on you know, laboratory values and clinical signs. And what they do is they assign certain uh, risk factors to each of these um, uh, clinical features. Uh, in this case, a risk factor that is smaller than one, it means it reduces the risk for that particular disease. And a risk factor that is greater than one, it means that increases the risk. So you can imagine that a simple approach is to say, okay, how many of these risk factors the patient has, and you're going to sort of add them up and based on that, make a decision. So you could have something like that for MISC, something like that for KD. And that's like a simplest type of machine learning model that you can have. What these type of uh, models we miss is the interactions about the factors. So, you know, if a patient comes in at very young age and has rash and also uh, the platelet counts are abnormal, we are now looking at sort of interaction among multiple risk factors. And that's where some of these more advanced uh, machine learning models like deep learning techniques, they come into play. So just a little bit of background about that. It turns out, um, you know, the deep learning uh, methods, they were initially uh, motivated by studies of human visual system. So human beings are just absolutely amazing at um, recognizing patterns. You know, if you have a pet, uh, whether the pet is close by or far distance, whether it is, you know, early in the morning or uh, late at night, you can recognize your, uh, your pet and that's what your visual system does. But but the way the visual system is able to accomplish that is through the sensors that you have in the eyes, in particular the photoreceptors, 
But if you look at these sensors, they are pretty, um, pretty simple. Uh, you have receptors for different colors and then for sort of receptors that they fire when you an object moves from the left to right or up to down. But what they do is essentially they detect very, very simple features of the visual scene. So sometime around uh, 1968 uh, or 1960s, uh, Hubble and Wiesel, who were electrophysiologists, they started uh, looking to the human visual pathway. And they realized that from the time that light arrives at the eyes, it goes into several layers of processing. In particular, these layers are known as V1, V2, V3 areas in the brain. The next thing they did was they essentially, they uh, poked in some electrodes into different areas and they asked the question that neurons in these areas, what, what do they respond to? They realized that in the V1 area, the neurons were responding into fairly simple patterns. By the time they got into, um, you know, upstream into other areas, they noticed that the neurons were firing or responding to more and more complex patterns. But the, the fascinating thing is that this ability to recognize complex patterns, it emerges from this hierarchical nature of the brain where it's combining very simple features at the lower level. So simple such as, is it, um, you know, the contrast, uh, the, the sort of level of lightness, et cetera. So inspired by the human visual system, computer scientists started to put together what we call artificial neural networks that are capable of identifying complex uh, patterns in the data. Like one example could be a patient with hypothermia who is immune system compromised and has elevated white blood count. Together, these risk factors that might be indicative of you know, infection. So again, inspired by this, um, Jonathan, uh, what he did was he said, okay, let's grab these risk factors that we have and pass it into what we call an artificial neural network. These neural networks, they have multiple layers of processing. We have the simple uh, risk factors as input to these models. And then there are these intermediate nodes that they can pay attention to certain aspects of the input data. So depending on how the weights in the network are defined, certain nodes, they can focus on, let's say, rash and platelet count and the age. Another node might uh, focus on myocyte you know, and white blood count, et cetera. And then these risk factors, they get combined together. So this is an example of a machine learning algorithm that is able to look at clinical signs and symptoms, combine them together in an efficient way to make a diagnosis for MIC. And then what we did was we said, okay, among the other patients, why don't we pass it to a second algorithm that characterizes uh, Kawasaki disease? So Jonathan was able to build this model and he was able to externally validate it on data from another 16 hospitals, all within a period of a few months. And then our, our clinicians, they were super excited. They said, you know, can we have a tool at the point of care in the emergency department such that we can use it to, to um, detect these cases of MISC. And so what he did was he ba basically put together a, what we call the kit match calculator that you can enter the signs and symptoms, and then you can click a button and it produces a risk score for MISC, but also it displays the top contributing factors to the risk so that the clinicians, they know what is happening inside of the AI system and what factors it's paying attention to. So this was a you know, very nice example. It all came together in a period of uh, 
a few months during the pandemic and our clinicians, they have been using this providing feedback. You know, we have been improving the user interface. Uh, you know, moving forward, uh, you know, while this particular use case involves um, what we call a web calculator with cl- where clinicians, they have to enter the individual numbers. Now at UC San Diego, we have the capability to bring data in real time from our electronic health record system, which gets its data from the laboratory, pharmacy, other sources, as well as the different devices, whether it is ventilators, IP infusion pumps, dialysis devices, or bedside monitors. We are, we are able to bring all of those into our computational environment. And, and uh, more recently, we have been working on bringing also imaging data, wearable sensors, um, and some of the advanced sensors that our bioengineering collaborators are developing, such as this tiny little sensor for measurement of blood lactate on a minute by minute basis. So the idea is that, you know, the data gets harmonized in one place, and then we can use it to, you know, make predictions. In fact, just over the past two years, working with uh, Dr. Chris Longhurst and his team, uh, we were able to deploy uh, two new algorithms. One of them is for early recognition of sepsis in uh, hospitalized patients. The other one is for prediction of need for mechanical ventilation. And then, uh, you know, working with Dr. Tai Seal, uh, we just had a proposal uh, submitted that says, okay, why don't we also bring together data from things like air quality, you know, pollen levels, you know, weather patterns, as well as other device, smart devices that look at, you know, compliance. So really the idea here is with the use of AI, we would be able to perform data enrichment and do multimodal analysis. I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Shumim. Much appreciated. Um, so um, our final panelist today is going to be Dr. Jeff Schaefer. Schaefer, he's a member of our UC San Diego Patient Advisory Council. And uh, when I asked him additional information that I could I could relate, he said, well, yeah, I speak fluent Italian and I cook like I live in Tus- Tuscany. So that's a bit of background on, on Jeff. Uh, but again, Jeff was nominated by Ming uh, to talk about this Patient Advisory Council work. And so maybe they can spend a couple of minutes talking. Uh, Ming, Ming, Ming will We'll, we'll tee this up a little bit with Jeff to get a sense of uh, to the group of what his role has been. So, Ming? Great. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, it's my great pleasure. I'm really excited to be sharing this time with Dr. Schaefer, who is a member of the first patient advisory council in our population health services organization, where the Digital 1000 program is. At. So, Dr. Schaefer, could you please share uh, your your experience with our audience on how you got involved in the uh, Patient Advisory Council? Certainly. Thank you, uh, Dr. Taisio. I just wanted to thank you and the rest of the team for the honor of being a part of this health talk. I think after listening to the talks, I think I would be, or I am a good example of showing the um, instance of patient and how the digital health technology help the patient and improve their situation. For my example, it was dealing with hypertension. So what happened was, is I did go to a primary care. I did discover that I suffered from hypertension. I guess it was due to the COVID and to the time, because this happened recently and I've never had that issue. And that, I was directed by the primary care to the popular population health system, 
which I figured, well, I don't know what that is. And they actually contacted me. And I must say, um, you know, going to the doctor's office and I'm being a doctor myself in the veterinary field, I found out I suffered from a white coat syndrome, which I felt I never even heard of that. And meanwhile, going to the doctor, I, it even increased my hypertensive measurements. So when I spoke to them on popular hate, the population health system, they said, well, why don't we work with you from home and try to regulate this? And that's exactly what happened. The, the group or the team of this population ex was absolutely amazing because I've never taken medication my entire life. So I, they said, let's try to regulate it because it was extremely high with medication. And I worked with them for months, which was quite interesting because I was having bad reactions to the medication. I was having um, effects and it wasn't coming down. But because of the interaction and because of the relationship with this population health system, we got it under control. And I'm actually quite happy of my numbers now. And, you know, they had did send me the, the system that you see here, you know, the system that I am addicted to because I now measure it. And I just find it's extremely helpful in that we've also discovered the proper medication after certain changes of ACE inhibitors and diuretics. And now I got to the correct medication. And I must say, it's been a fantastic experience. And I would be available for any patient also who wanted me to advise them on how great it can or could be. Thank you so much, Dr. Schaefer. Really appreciate your insights. Um, Dr. Schaefer has been an invaluable member for our patient advisory council. So thank you again for joining us. My pleasure. First of all, I want to thank everyone, particularly um, Mr. Schaeffer for um, participating in this because it's, um, it's really very, very helpful at the end of the day to understand how it actually works. It's, some things look great on paper and they don't work in practice. Let me ask um, Ming the first question. Um, and, and there are a lot of really related questions, but the, people are wondering, what's the limitations of, of, of um, digital health? I mean, what, what you don't want to do by digital health and what, what, what works better by digital health, in your opinion? In my opinion, I think what works well is it's something that provides the necessary information that could influence either personal health decisions or inform the clinical team in changing clinical decisions, you know, so the information is valuable to affect choices, whether it's personal, you know, lifestyle habits or clinical decisions like in Dr. Schaefer's case, what medicine for his hypertension is most effective. So when we have digital health, you know, remote monitoring tools that provide that kind of data, that's very helpful. I think for things when that's not helpful, I think if the devices are not you know, well calibrated, or if it's, you know, excessive amount of inform of data, and, and if the system is not built, if this infrastructure is not there to support the patient, then it may be premature to use those, you know, people could get anxious, you know, they may not know 
what the data is telling them. So I know there are lots of experts uh, who can answer this question probably much better than I could. Jeff, please go ahead. Just one point from the patient perspective. I think yeah. one of the limitations is compliance. So here is you send them a machine, you tell them to do it, and they don't do it. So what I found super fantastic from this population that was building the relationship with the caregiver who followed up with me. And it was an amazing relationship that my compliance of taking my test, I started getting addicted to it because <laughs> I was learning more about myself doing the hypertensive test. I, I saw when it was high and then it was emotional. It was attached to my emotions, my what's happening in my life. So it was fascinating. It was an extreme learning experience as a patient, but the compliance issue I think would be difficult. But because you guys at UCSD and the team really cared about me, I complied. I have another really quick question for Jeffrey and Ming. People want to know how they can get on your patient advisory council. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, uh, send me a message. We'll be very happy to invite you. We have currently seven members who are patients or family caregivers, and we meet quarterly. And it's been a wonderful experience. We've had uh, two meetings and more will come, so we can always have more contributors. Thank you. I have some questions for Kristen. Um, people want to know how you integrate research with clinical care. And in particular, is the type of data you're generating used in real time or is it analyzed and, you know, in, and used later? Absolutely. So we do both. Uh, we use the data in real time uh, for clinical care and management decisions at the time of the patient appointment. Uh, we also have the ability to utilize that data for research uh, retrospectively. So trying, you know, as we were building um, our clinical research center and really trying to be able to um, have patients be able to enroll in a lot of these uh, trials going forward, um, it, it requires a lot of infrastructure that we're working on building, making sure we have consents at the time so we can reach out to people in real time who might be interested. Um, but absolutely, from a larger data perspective, we can use the data for retrospective research, looking at outcomes um, and things like that. I don't know who can answer this. Uh, maybe Kevin. <laughs> but there were questions about what, what maybe not. <laughs> there were questions about what insurance covers and what it doesn't cover. I mean, we, we have these technologies. We're doing a project. But um, what is anything that we know is covered by insurance yet or not? Uh, I can speak to that. Good, thank you. In, in diabetes, uh, we deal with this on a daily basis. Good. Um, so 100% like insurance will cover a glucose meter. Now, whether that is the glucose meter that interacts with our system flawlessly with one step um, and having you know the Bluetooth ability for that passive flow of data um, versus the meter that requires 16 steps to connect and get that data, that's, you know, up to the insurance company. Um, so it is, and this is one of the, the issues that we're dealing with in Project 1000, where we're using this one particular meter 
that, you know, we have to provide to the patients, but in trying to design and to be able to scale this for our entire patient population and to be able to utilize the meter that is covered by insurance, we're running into these uh, little technical difficulties uh, and the nuances between different uh, devices. That being said, we also have codes to where we can bill for that interpretation of this data between visits. So we do get some reimbursement to help support a population health uh, type team uh, to be able to look at that data uh, between visits. So I, I would say it's definitely headed in the right direction, um, but still quite a bit of ways to go. Well, that, that was, if I could interject, that, that was an excellent uh, uh, summary. And I, I just want to say something about new technologies, new, new to the clinic technologies. Uh, the industry is required to, uh, first of all, get FDA approval. And that's a very rigorous process. But on the reimbursement side, uh, we have to produce credible data of the value of that new technology uh, and that value is measured in, in a number of ways, but it's not, it's not like buying a TV set where, you know, if, if, you, if you like the way it looks, you go and buy it. Uh, and, and we have to, in the industry, uh, create real hard and fast data that the technology uh, delivers benefit to the patient that's measurable. I have another question for Paul. People want to know whether or not um, companies will develop a whole slew of, of, of um, different devices. In other words, one company developing multiple, multiple devices, or will everything be one-off? Like the glucose monitor is just one area of specialization. The, high, the blood pressure is another area. Yeah. The, uh, uh, first of all, technology is a, is a big field. Uh, most companies will develop a division or at least a, a, a multi-personnel function to uh, focus on a, an application. And you re have to recognize that uh, virtually every technology that, that you've been exposed to in today's uh, presentation, uh, when you look at the first use and you look at it five years later, it has gone through many, many iterations and, and new models and, and more sophistication. So, so companies tend to form areas of acute special, specialization on an application by application basis. I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, that's exactly right. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. Um, um, Shamim, I have a question um, for you. Some of my colleagues are worried about being replaced being replaced by artificial intelligence, particularly nervous or radiologists and pathologists. Do you have any words of wisdom for them? Well, uh, we just had a grant uh, funded. Uh, it's focused on um, you know machine physician uh, symbiosis. I think um, uh, clinicians are at the bedside and they have access to certain information about patients that currently AI systems they just don't have. You know, we often talk about nursing intuition or, or clinical uh, physician intuition. I, I wouldn't worry about that. I think if anything, um, the current AI systems, um, they can really benefit from receiving constant feedback, feedback from clinicians and improving their performance. Although in my field, uh, hepatology, they find that in the clinical trials, if they have 
if they read the slides by AI, they're much more reproducible than if they're read by um, in, individual pathologists. Yeah, I think AI systems, they are more consistent, but I think uh, there is this issue of data integration that clinicians they just have access to so much more information about uh, patients that AI systems, they don't as of, as of now. Yeah, if I could add, add to that. I was going to another question. Go ahead, Kevin. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's, it's the challenge, and you know, we, we all know on, the, on this call or in this meeting, people don't have one conditioner. They don't have one problem. They often have a set of concerns, a set of, a set of issues that have to be dealt with. And the integration, you heard Ming talking about this, you know, the home visit that establishes certain kinds of contextual issues. I think that that pivot or that shift Many of the things we're talking about today can free up simpler kinds of things by virtue of the technologies to allow that deeper and richer understanding to occur. Somebody has hypertension and they have diabetes and they've they've just lost a loved one. And so they're also depressed. I mean, a variety of these things that, that just you know, the, the deeper you dig into them, the more opportunity there is to, I think, provide better care. And these things can be adjuncts to this better provision of care. With luck, that will happen. It's funny you should say that because they. The next question was, are there apps for depression and anxiety? <laughs> Maybe Kevin can answer that. Well, absolutely. Yes. I mean, in mental health, the whole field of mental health is one that, that's sort of exploding. And I think COVID advanced that because of remote care and whatnot. Uh, but but I, I would, again, turn around and sort of say there's lots out there, but are they proven effective? Are they proven over the long haul? You know, many mental, many problems like depression and whatnot are, are long haul, long term kinds of problems. And when one is required also to take an adjunctive medication along with them. So again, we're at the dawn of this. And I think there are some and, and, uh, and we will be discovering more of them in our Center for Innovation. There are different researchers. I'm happy to go offline and, and, and introduce folks. Rayanne Moore, a young researcher here at UCSD, is doing some phenomenal work in interface technologies that people are using to then discover things that might not otherwise be either found in the first place or managed over time. Thank you. Ming, several um, people have are concerned about the balance between technology and um, hands-on patient care. Um, that, for example, you know, sitting, talking to the patient, picking up visual cues, you know, th things like that, they're afraid will be lost in, in the digital world. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. I think it's really important to have that trusting relationship between the patient and the physician or the, the healthcare provider. And it's really hard to replace that one-on-one, uh, -on -one, you know, in, in that safe space. However, you know, with COVID, we've seen there are a lot of real world uh, limitations, constraints on the ability of a healthcare system to provide, to continue to provide that, you know, out of concern for patient health and for, you know, healthcare professionals' uh, health. So, so I think the, the digital, the telehealth as an augmentation to that in-person, face-to-face, real-time communication is a tool that could, you know, support the patient and meet the patient's care when, you know, perhaps the first best is not available, but it's much better than the alternative of not having care. You know, we have um, a recent paper published by our faculty uh, at UC San Diego that noted that Patients with cancer, they're showing because of, you know, during the COVID period, they're coming at a later stage, 
you know, so it's really important that we have additional mechanisms for patients to continue to receive care given the constraints because of the pandemic or because of other other issues. Jeff, and, and Jeff, I, yeah. Maybe Jeff wants to comment how it's worked for him as a patient. Remember, when you see a doctor, their time is valuable, your time is valuable. And therefore, having the data and the um, information in front of the doctor, and he's already studied it, and he's gone over the history, actually saves the time. He's, he knows what's happening, and therefore, you can really get into more important face-to-face information, doctor-patient relationship. So I actually found, and I totally understand that because you want to have a good, you know, doctor-patient relationship, but this actually saves the time and it makes that time even more beneficial and to both parties. So it actually is a savings grace, the health technology. So it is a balance, but it really works. Thank you, Jeff. There's some concerns about security, about all this data going all over the place and who gets to see it. And, and does, it, does the company who's, you know, generating the data, you know, the device generating the data actually get to keep the, keep the data, you know, or is it just available for the, um, for the physician and the chart? Well, well, on the UCST side, you know, we have a HIPAA compliant environment. It's, it's a secure environment and the data doesn't really leave the institution. Um, on the on the devices side, um, the key term there is consent, and to the degree that patients they understand what they are consenting to, uh, their data might go to different places used for for. So it's very very important to read the fine lines. Thank you all. This is really fun. I, I really appreciate it. Bye bye now. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.